Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Catherine. What's up? Hello. Hello. Hi. So do you hear this sound? Yes. That's the sound of a traditional pen. Ew, it's so gross. I wasn't going to go with gross, but I mean, you could just throw it out there. Oh, cringeworthy. <laughs> so if you know me, I'm always taking notes. I'm always writing things down. And one of the challenges with that, I love writing stuff on paper with old school pens. However, capturing that stuff, quantifying it, organizing it in a way that I can use it later, maybe not my strong suit. If anyone's seen all. all the note cards around our studio, it's intense. <laughs> That's why I'm really excited for today's new contest and we have a partnership going with Beta. You've seen the contest that we're running. We're giving away really cool tech. And today's tech is no different. Today's tech is the Neolab Convergence Smart Pen. The M1 Smart Pen. I'm using it now. Do you hear anything? No. That's because it's smart. It's a smart <laughs> pen. So when you're writing with this pen, you're going to be able to take pages of notes. They're going to be recorded. They're going to be, you're going to be able to use these later on. How many pages, you ask? Catherine, guess. Guess how many pages you can take. Uh, 50. Okay. 2,000. <laughs> 1,000. So just, just with this pen, it looks like a normal pen. Uh, I love that it's fluorescent. I love that it's bright. And I can't wait to start using this more. So it connects to your computer or your uh, Android or your Apple device via Bluetooth. And I'm really excited to just start, yeah, getting that, you know, keeping that tactile experience going, but also being able to record stuff better. I agree. We're giving away two of them. One of them we're trying out. So make sure you go to mission.org slash giveaway. When you enter, you're going to get one entry to win. You can get more entries by referring more subscribers to our daily newsletter. So stay tuned. And we have more contests and more great content in the works. I was like perfect in college. Like I was like, why? Why isn't this like the magical Harry Potter pen riding into like, you know? And now it's true. That's so crazy. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily, selected as Best of 2018 by Apple. Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, we have Camille Foster. Camille is co-founder and lead producer at Freethink, a media company telling powerful stories about today's pioneers changing the world. Prior to Freethink, Camille was co-host of the program titled The Independence, which hosted roundtables on the news of the day. In this episode, Chad and Camille discuss the current state of journalism, what it's like starting a media company today, and what the future of media looks like. Camille, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chad. So what brings you out? to the bay i am on a bit of an editorial listening tour um my team over at freethink we tell stories about the people who are changing the world and the important big ideas that are changing the world and the new innovations that are on the horizon um and in order to figure out just what those things are kind of need to get out of the office and go talk to interesting smart people who are investing and building um and speculating and thinking um, so that's what I've been doing for a couple of days and swung by because I thought it'd be good to talk to you. You're one of those smart awesome. people. I appreciate that, man. Trying Thank to help you. shape the world. Trying. Yeah. Trying to make it happen here. And um, let me flex for both of us here. Um, <laughs> we first met at uh, Peter Thiel's house for uh -huh. dinner. That's true. And uh, yeah, you were sitting across the table and we uh, talked a bit afterwards. Uh -huh. You don't meet too many people who are crazy enough to do a media startup <laughs> it's it's pretty brutal right like yeah. i mean do you come across a lot i mean there, there are a lot of people in media mm -hmm. but there aren't many founders that are trying 
you know, to go big or create something that's lasting in media? Yeah, I don't meet many people. Um, and I try to imagine like, what could I do that would be stranger um, or perhaps more risky than starting a, a media startup right now, like a video centered media startup. I suppose we could try to start a newspaper. Like that would be <laughs> like a little crazier, maybe a little local daily. Um, but you know, it's, it's going rather well. Um, we're, we're trying to do something that we think is both necessary and important. Um, and we do think that there's a, an audience out there for it and a unique space that we can fill in the media landscape. And, you know, it's been a couple of decades since it was practical for most people to get out there and try to build a media brand, a content company. Um, and we've got a unique window here where, you know, the cost, um, and the sort of accessibility of the technology required to be able to do something like that is it's it's dropped pretty profoundly. Um, so we're trying to take advantage of that. And I definitely agree that it's a window that's opening because, you know, you have a lot of the giant media companies right now. They're faltering. They're laying off staff. Mm-hmm. You have the new media companies right now that are shuttering divisions. Uh, a bunch of different companies just closed their podcast divisions. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is it's day one in this space. And a lot of people are already tapping out. Yeah. Does that make you fearful or do you like myself just see the opportunity? (laughs) Well, it'd be silly not to be aware of the risks associated with the, with what's going on in the space. Um, But I I am still very much aware of the opportunity. The the reality is that the appetite for content is still growing and the interest in finding new interesting voices that resonate with you is something that a lot of people are still doing. So there's definitely an opportunity. Um, And there's no question that there will always be a demand. It's a question of whether or not you're able to find the right kind of stories to tell. And um, I I expect that we'll continue to see consolidation and new entrants as well, even if it's slow, Um, and folks blinking out of existence. This is just the nature of things. Um, Some reorganization, some some. Uh, rearrangement of priorities within different organizations. Um, but again, there's, I think there's definitely still opportunity out there. There's definitely still, um, there's definitely still good reason to be involved in the space. Couldn't agree more. So take me back to your origin story uh, as a kid. Let's take it back as early as you want to start. What What are some of your first memories? First memories, just broadly speaking? Broadly speaking. Huh. I, I, I guess it's probably... Being a kid growing up in Northern Virginia, um, my family was quite small, um, but, you know, mom, dad, uh, myself, my baby sister, we got about 10 years between us. You said earliest memory and my earliest memory, I can hear my dad's voice uh, and I can hear these little mantras that he imparted to me. Like, don't take any wooden nickels, which is something I still try to figure out. I think it has something to do with counterfeit things. Yeah, I love it. He would also say something along the lines of your attitude defines your altitude. Um, and constantly, he was constantly challenging me to be my best self, to strive for something that seemed beyond other people's conception of what was appropriate or possible. Um, and... That's when you say first thought, that's the first thought that comes to me. Cool. And anytime you are challenged or encouraged by someone, there can be a tendency for some people, and I'm speaking from my own experience here, to rebel. Did you go through much of a rebellious streak when he's challenging you? Because that can be Hmm. a lot of pressure, right? When you're everybody else is saying settle and somebody else, maybe your dad, other people are saying go big. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I ever rebelled. I do think that 
it's really only in later in life that I came to appreciate precisely what the message was that he was giving me. Um, and it's only later in life that I appreciated the degree to which you know, some of the kids in class might not be so interested in pushing for something extraordinary and trying harder to do something that was truly excellent. Um, so I think in, in that respect, it was perhaps a, a, a bit of a late learner, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly not resistant to the message, not resistant completely to the encouragement, but perhaps not aware of just how important a message that was. Sure. And were you in public school or where'd you go to school at? Yeah, public school. Um, the first in, I guess that was Loudoun County, uh, Virginia. Uh, and then we moved from Virginia to Maryland and I went to school in Gaithersburg, Maryland, so okay, Montgomery cool. County. I was in um, Washington County. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, DC, Maryland, Virginia, it's kind of all the, it's all one region in mm-hmm. some ways. Uh, so it, similar it, culture, it's right? one culture. It permeates just about yeah. everywhere. Even some of the, uh, more remote areas yeah. have a similar feel. Interesting pr- professional culture. A lot of people who worked in and around government, um, even after uh, college, you know, most of my friends from college, I went to University of Maryland College Park, uh, were doctors, lawyers, like those kind of safe professions. Yeah. Um, and if they weren't either of those things, then they worked in and around government somehow, like a consultancy or in some sort of government bureau, which... I'm confident that that's 90% of the reason why I ended up leaving um, DC for New York uh, once I got old enough to. Same here. I mean, we found when I left the military in 2012, my wife and I moved to Potomac and we lived there for two years. Mm. And I found it was really tough to push the limits or boundaries in conversations. Uh It was hard to get to a place that was authentic or deep or in my mind, you know, don't want to sound like a jerk here, but interesting and exciting. And um, that's why we moved out here. So what did you study in school and what did you, uh, when did you decide to make the jump to New York? So I studied, uh, initially I studied biochem. That was my first major. And somewhere along the line and my first winter break, I was at home and I was watching a bunch of C-SPAN and I'd always had an interest in public policy. Uh, but I became completely addicted to watching congressional hearings and stuff like that on C-SPAN and I decided to change my major to government and economics, much to my mother's chagrin. Um, but I didn't have a conventional undergraduate experience. After my second year of undergraduate, I actually started going part-time and I started this small telecom consulting firm with a good friend of mine from high school. And that was the beginning of what would be really a 10-year kind of detour where I went and built a company. It was a lifestyle business, not a revolutionary enterprise. Um, and not even something I would call a startup necessarily, um, but it was an opportunity to really get a sense for what's required to to build something from scratch, to sure. imagine to imagine fit meeting a particular need for clients, and then to actually realize that. Uh, so that was a, a really important uh, exercise for me. And at the end of that ten year period. Um, eventually someone sent me a degree. I never bothered walking across the stage, but also didn't stop going. So I have my degrees in government and economics from Maryland. Um, but at the end of that period, I, I wanted something different. My wife was starting a new project at that point, And both of us were kind of back and forth between DC and New York for different things. I was doing media appearances every once in a while, like cable news, 
uh, various other contexts, sometimes talking about entrepreneurship, other times talking about public policy. And I ended up in New York and got an invitation to come and audition for this nightly cable television show. And I actually turned them down initially because I had to go do a project with my wife. Um, but I got a call from someone who said, Camille, you need to do this. And it's the sort of person that you, in your life, who, when they tell you something, you say, okay, fine, I'll do what you ask, even though it's inconvenient. Um, and that was another interesting detour where I went off and did this television show on Fox business for about a year and a half. It's a nightly news show. So again, not anything I ever planned. Um, but it was a great experience, uh, an opportunity to, to meet a lot of interesting people in the media universe and an opportunity to, to develop some, some new muscles uh, with respect to reading the news cycle, paying close attention to what's happening in the news cycle um, at sort of a really granular level um, and helping to sort of craft the news that people are paying attention to on a daily basis. So. And when you were considering and vetting that opportunity and you had that word of, uh, you know, that nudge, that encouragement came your way, did you, was there fear to jump into it? Was there excitement? Was there, what was that thought process? Because I know for a lot of people listening, they're thinking, you know, cable news, I'd be terrified to get out there, get in front of the bright lights, get get makeup, get the cameras going. Uh, That's nerve wracking for a lot of folks. Well, there's definitely some, some reluctance and some trepidation because it's unknown. Uh, and anytime you're doing something unknown, you, you, I suspect can be a little bit nervous, but the things that were nerve wracking about it were never the cameras. It was never the lights. I've always been very, very comfortable showing up someplace and sure. having a conversation about something so long as I understand it. Um, I think it's probably the unstated rules, the, the, the thinking, the thought that you might be kind of broaching some rules of decorum that you're just not completely privy to. So the first, I still remember the first time I sat down to do a a segment, I think I was with, um, gosh, I can't remember his name, but I remember we got out on set, we were having a conversation and it turned into this really fiery debate, mostly him being fiery. And at the end of the debate, you know, at the end of the segment, he just turns to me and says, yeah, it was great. And kind of walks off or like friendly. All of a sudden, and a moment ago, it was only contempt for me. And I think understanding kind of the theatrical component, right. for example, of that of that whole industry uh, is something that was a little surprising to me. And all along the way, kind of picking up those lessons, like figuring out precisely how this whole thing worked, going from, again, just being someone who's outside, who has a, a, a serious interest in public policy, who has a serious interest in some of the various issues of the day um, and has followed those things closely. It's very different to go from, from just having that interest to actually sharing your perspective on things on a daily basis, helping to curate a particular news program on a daily basis. Um, So yeah, I think that was, that was probably a bit nerve wracking um, in some respects, the, the uncertainty of, of approaching something like that. But more than the uncertainty, though, was the enthusiasm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an opportunity to do something new, uh, an opportunity to to really a privilege to have your voice be amplified in a way that sure. most people will never ever experience. Did the theatrical nature of the news and what is purported to be accurate information make you terrified? Did you start thinking, "Oh my God, late stage Roman Empire! I got to get I got to get my <laughs> stuff together. I got to get I got to get safety for my family." Um, or, or what were your thoughts there? It was a bit of a turnoff 
honestly. I, I think that was the the part of it that I found a bit a bit frustrating. Um the the degree to which, you know, people show up in the green room and the experiences that you have in the green rooms where someone is kind of working on their lines, you know, the the one liner that they've got or something like that. I think that that was a bit frustrating. Um but being able to to pay really close attention to the news cycle, some of the processes that are interesting is the sort of degree to which people who are actually responsible for helping to craft the news are you know, they're depending on other people's reporting. They don't necessarily have a lot of firsthand experience in 24 hour news cycle. There can only be so much vetting of a particular story that ends up on the air. Um, And I think I had an expectation that there was that the gatekeepers uh, were a little bit more careful, Mm -hmm. were being watched in a way that was a bit more deliberate. Uh, But the capacity for errors, the very kind of human nature of the project, of the process of creating the news um, is something that shouldn't have been surprising to me, but but definitely was. Um, and I think that's probably something that would surprise most people. I think most people, especially today, when we talk a lot about you know, the post-truth era, et cetera, um, the crisis in journalism, there is a sensibility that what journalists do is is sacred mm-hmm. and that what they do is almost mystical. They collect the truth and they bring it to you. And it's both the case that I think the public has an expectation about the unique objectivity, the oracle-like nature of what journalists do. And journalists themselves often talk about what they do in kind of these grandiose terms. All we do is report the truth. All we do is bring people the facts. But there is a, it's necessarily a human endeavor. And there's necessarily some chub- subjectivity in any human endeavor. Right. Um, and as a result, that that really that ought to change our relationship to, to the news. It ought to change this kind of expectations that we bring to bear when we're reading a story in August publications or watching our favorite commentators talk about things. Um, they're, they're, they're human. They're coloring the story and it's an unavoidable reality. And I think if we adjust our expectations, uh, we, we almost certainly get a better product. We're able to help hold journalists, to the appropriate standard rather than kind of this unattainable standard of perfect oracle. And it gives the journalists permission to experiment and go deep and go way off the beaten path because I think people forget that investigative journalism looks crazy until it's not, until the story breaks and you discover something that, you know, you before that story broke, you couldn't imagine that so-and-so was doing this or that. And I think we've lost that a bit, right? There aren't many investigative journalists there are a lot of them now, but mm-hmm. are there as many as there used to be? Do you feel like journalists are really going deep and taking a lot of personal risks? Do you see anybody out there that's doing that? Definitely see people who are. Um, and I mean, if anything, I think that, that there's no shortage of people who are trying to tell very big stories. In a number of instances, though, it's kind of the same big story. Like for the past two years, there's been a lot of reporting around the president of the United States and the election and Russian collusion. Um, and uh, I think a lot of those narratives tend to kind of be self-reinforcing. Like there's a lot of speculation related to those narratives. Um, and some of that is to be expected. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of necessary when you're probing. Um, but it's also something where the, 
the fact that everyone has their magnifying glass out looking in that particular area becomes a story onto itself and you amplify every shred of evidence in some cases every new thread of speculation Mm -hmm. which this is probably not (laughs) the appropriate way to do things um and it's 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 all kind of amplifying the same the same sort of narrative with the same sort of philosophical um leanings if that makes sense it's tricky right it's yeah. it's really tricky because you want people out there doing that but at the same time i uh I, yeah i get worried when it's like speculations on speculations and uh-huh. there's so much collective cultural energy in the united states that has been yeah. devoted towards a very you know han- a handful of people and meanwhile there are uh, way more people out there that need help that right. n- that need that uh attention and yeah. energy and uh i feel like focusing the narrative on just a handful of people yeah. leaves out the people that are you know suffering that yeah. are not going to be okay and it's and it's one of those things where everyone is willing to pay a lot of attention to what's going on under the approved area yeah. of interest that's the socially there are responsible risks associated with picking a fight with the rest of the industry there are risks associated with being the the oddball out who says i wonder if we ought to be paying so much attention to this story perhaps the story that ought to be significant is over here um so you still have a lot of investigative journalists you still have people who are doing i think very thoughtful work Mm -hmm. um what you perhaps don't have nearly enough of uh is people who are willing to kind of break from the mold within some of the most celebrated media industries um I, i think the best thing about the current journalism environment, about the current media landscape is the degree to which things are bifurcated, not bifurcated, but um, sort of splintered. Mm-hmm. And you've got this this narrow casting that's happening all over the place and these new entrants into the media universe who have the ability to go pay attention to something that's been overlooked sure, um, and really help to push the entire, an entire narrative uh, that, might not have received any sort of attention before. Um, and that is a, that is a good thing. I think that has the capacity to help uh, mitigate against the risk of everyone hyper-focusing in a particular area. Um, I think it, it's just also happening at a time when folks are particularly concerned about the, the factualness of the reporting that's happening. Um, and when a lot of people are simultaneously worried about the fact that there are all of these new entrants, if there are these new entrants, you know, who is going to ensure that these are the right kind of people to be out there telling these stories time and the market, right? I, or- I think that's just it. We, we have to depend on people, citizens, new media consumers being thoughtful critics, being thoughtful readers, thoughtful consumers of media, which is why it's so important not to, to be mystified by the practice of journalism. It's absolutely imperative that people are thoughtfully skeptical when they're reading. That's Mm -hmm. not cynicism. It's not being cynical, but being thoughtfully skeptical, skeptical in the sense that you care a great deal about whether or not this is true. And you're willing to ask questions about the abstractions that are necessarily drawn within a story. Um, I, I often make allusions to, or draw, draw parallels to like a map. You know, a map is never a one-to-one representation of all of the things sure. that you'll encounter in the world. It has to be 
abstracted from reality in a way that makes it useful to you. And it's being useful is a function of the fact that it's leaving out a lot of the detail and giving you sort of a lower resolution portrait. But when you know that, when you're aware of the fact that it's an abstraction and you use it in that way, it doesn't become, it becomes a much more useful tool than when you presume that this Google map representation of the earth is exactly correct and corresponds precisely to everything that's going on out there. Um, there's a there's an obvious disadvantage to to that sort of approach to yeah. to reading the news and to making use of the media. I love that parallel because maps are wonderful, but they don't allow you to experience what it's like on the terrain or sure. what has happened on that terrain over history. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you feel like with a lot of digital media and where the digital media world is going that we're becoming isolated from direct experience and people are slowly trading off direct experience in the in the real world in nature with experience that is filtered through a screen or filtered through the opinion of others and you worry sometimes that people are losing the ability to uh, get out there and make their own judgments um, without the lens of media you know that's not a concern of mine um, I, I I like to think and it, it might just be that I'm an optimist that for the most part, people are able to experience or at least get a glimpse of things that they might not be exposed to otherwise, and that that can actually inspire them to get out and do something interesting. Um, I I know there's a lot of attention on screen time and you know questions about whether or not we're addicted to our devices and things like that. And most of those concerns don't don't animate me mm-hmm. a great deal. Um, I think. Plenty of people don't use Facebook or Twitter um, and plenty of people just stop using those things at various times. Uh, I think to the extent we are using these tools um, and we can use them to connect with other people, we can use them to define to to find and define new passions for ourselves, to Mm -hmm. find new communities that we can go out and experience the world with. Um, to to experiment with things that we perhaps might not have otherwise experimented with, um, so I'm I'm super optimistic about our ability to continue to get out and experience experience the world and to encounter voices like like this, sure, um, where you're being challenged to do that and you're being asked whether or not you're doing that. I mean, imagine you know, thirty forty years ago when you pretty much had the four major network television. Um, companies and a couple of other ancillary players. Cable television is sort of on the horizon. I mean, where where do you find a voice like this that's concerned with that sort of thing? Um, I, I think it's much easier to find that today. So yeah, I think I, our prospects are probably a lot better for that. I couldn't agree more because you think about that world and um, I think the amount of loneliness and isolation that people were feeling back then, I think might be much higher than Uh, people are feeling now because you hear, oh, there's a depression epidemic and a mental health challenge and people are so lonely. They've never been lonelier and stuff. But if you think back to that world, how hard was it to communicate or find someone else who shared your interests and and passions? Sure. It had to have been harder back then, right? I imagine so. And and even to just feel like you're you're totally uh, you're totally strange for not feeling the same way as the rest of the folks on your block or your neighborhood. So, yeah, but I would certainly say so. When you think about media and as you're building your company and everything like that, do you think that your experiences uh, hosting that show really helped 
open the doors for you as to what was possible because you you saw the creation happening and you saw mm -hmm. that these people were uh just like everyone else imperfect that they were there's a lot of theater there was a lot of uh but basically like do you think that seeing how the sausage got made gave you a lot of confidence in your current ventures undoubtedly because the the sense again the the scales fall away from your eyes in a sense and the the notion that you don't have sufficient experience to do this well you know in terms of anyone's experience your experience is totally appropriate and up to the task relative to you know what their experience was you might not have worked on the same show for you know 15 or 20 years but considering the pace at which the media landscape is changing um, the pace at which you know the the technology and business landscape is changing and political landscape uh, the 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 notion that you're kind of missing some critical experience that would make it impossible for you to find an audience to connect with is just, I think, misguided. Um, so my experience most certainly informed that perspective. Very cool. And when you started the process of founding the company, who did you decide to found the company with? Because I think the shared history part of the equation gets left out a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you go about deciding who you were going to work with and and why? Well, that was a pretty organic process. I mean, Freethink is a company that was born out of a partnership of four uh, like-minded souls who all wanted to create media products and content that resonated with people that was about what we think is the most important story of the moment. It's the fact that we live at the best, most incredible time in human history, a time when people have this enormous individual capacity and ability because of all the technology at our disposal to make massive change in the world. Um, it's not that does not mean that there's a world with no problems. It means that we've never been better positioned to be able to tackle the world's big problems. Um, and we think that's the most important and sort of underexplored story um, of our time. Um, and we also think it's perhaps the most important story in, in human history, broadly speaking, mm -hmm. things that people might do today and tomorrow um, could could, you know, change the course of human history for the better. So we want to we want to tell that story, want to tell it minus the cynicism that we see in other places um, with a, a kind of curiosity and enthusiasm and excitement and optimism um, that I think has been missing uh, in a lot of other contexts. So, you know, we had that shared belief. Um, we sort of met in a rather, it's, it's a, that would be a bit of a long story, but it was kind of an organic happenstance encounter. It was a situation where initially I was kind of helping from the outside. And before I knew it, I found that I was pretty much spending all of my time working on this project. Uh, and then we kind of formalized our alliance and found some other like-minded souls. And Freethink for the first six or seven years was really more of a creative agency, creating content for other people. And it was not until we finished our first documentary feature project that we decided that there might be a real opportunity for us to be an original content brand and to build an original content brand. And that's a journey that we've been on for a little over three years now. And it's a really successful journey too. I've, I've uh, kept tabs a little bit. We've caught up uh, since we first met. And what are you seeing when you talk to uh, clients, when you talk to people in the marketplace, what type of trends are you seeing? What type of uh, patterns are you excited about right now? Well, there are two things that are really important to us when we talk to clients. Um, one is that 
rather than what happens in a lot of the rest of the the media industry, um, we don't talk about views in the kind of three second view traditional sense that you might hear. We think about completed views. We're interested in deriving meaningful attention from valuable audiences and meaningful attentions means that we're creating content that's resonates with audiences that, that so well that they're actually interested in completing it and then <laughs> signing on to find more of the same kind of content. And I think thinking about our content in that way um, pushes us away from listicles and pushes us towards telling deep, thoughtful stories um, about people who are doing incredible and important things, but also not just getting caught up in the details of the how or the what, but really focusing on what is pretty universal to every story, the why, like what motivated you to do this important thing? What what led you to believe that you could actually do this important thing? Those are like universal messages that everyone gets. Whether or not you're a nuclear physicist, you might not understand the technology associated with this reactor, this revolutionary new reactor that someone's trying to build, but you totally get the fact that someone is inspired by being taken to the museum by dad on a, on a regular basis and being encouraged and told that they have the capacity to do something remarkable. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing though um, is just when we look across the media landscape and we do a lot of work with brands where we're either producing content with brands or brands are helping to underwrite series that we're producing and the, the question we always ask them is if if you agree with us that the media landscape tends to be cynical, that a lot of the reporting that happens tends to be about what's wrong and what's broken. Um, the question is, where do you really want your logo to show up? Are you interested in having your logo associated with content about you know the latest business scandal or you know the the biggest tech, the big technology letdown of the week or speculation about why something won't work or might it be better to be associated with a brand that's telling stories about the incredible, amazing things that might be coming down the road, the opportunities that are ahead of us. And certainly there's uncertainty about some new innovation, but what if it works? Mm. What if it works? How does this change the world for the better? Um, there's a remarkable story to be told there. Um, and I think that there is, there's generally a brand synergy between anyone who's trying to sell something and an optimistic, forward-looking view of the world. Definitely. And uh, the story I like to tell is that we were recently talking to a prospective client and they were considering us and then another large brand studio that everyone would recognize. And I came home, I was thinking about things and I uh, got on social media and in my feed, I'd been retargeted by uh, that media company and the brand studio that was also trying to sell and persuade them. And the ad was, uh, there's no other way to say it, it was complete slander about the company mm. and from their publishing side, not from their brand studio. Sure. And I brought this up, brought, you know, screenshotted it. And it was, that's the whole argument in a nutshell is you have a lot of these established media companies that have a brand studio that is trying to do one thing, right. trying to ostensibly be optimistic. But the publishing arm, on the other hand, besmirching everything. It's negativity to the max. And I just, I brought that up. We talked about that and it led to a really interesting and honest conversation. But that honest conversation didn't happen without showing them the, real, the reality of the situation. Right. Why, why do you think, and we, we talked about the why earlier. Why do you think that that is, why are these companies doing this? Why are the, the publishers and the writers and people who are calling themselves journalists 
are they hurting so much? Why are they so negative? Yeah, I think it's easier to, we have a pessimistic bias in some context, and it, it can be much easier to imagine the specific awful things that could happen to us, um, the uncertainty um, of the future. You know, we, we've talked a lot about AI these days, and um, I actually had a conversation with a, a presidential candidate last week um, who talks a lot about automation and the the coming waves of joblessness that might happen. And it's certainly true. Like various careers will blink out of existence undoubtedly and have over the course of the last 20 years because of technological innovation. But there's another true story, and it's that there have been so many new kinds of jobs created. Um, the job that I do Every job I've done in my adult life, quite frankly, are jobs that have never existed. In some mm. instances, I'm among the first people to ever do this thing for a living. Um, and it's much harder to imagine what those things are. It's much harder to imagine what those opportunities are. So I, I give folks a bit of a pass, you know, in that respect, when it comes to being tasked with imagining how amazing things could be if this goes right, um, when it comes to giving folks the benefit of the doubt as opposed to focusing on people's motives and imagining what sort of the darkest possible motives are. I, I understand that, especially when you're talking about powerful entities like mm. government and business. There's, 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 an obvious, there's an obvious instinct towards being somewhat skeptical. And a lot of the fear is rational and skepticism uh-huh. is not, you know, not a bad thing. And, yeah. uh, but at the same time, it's like you're going to have to let go of the the president to embrace the future. And yeah. there's a possible there's a very good possibility now that the future is going to be bright. It's going to be wonderful. Yeah. Um, so how are you thinking about imagining that future and kind of painting that um, what you see? Because I hear it in your voice. You're optimistic. How are you going about painting a vision of what that is? It depends on the mission. Uh, and I suspect in every context, it's it's going to require some different tools. Um, as I mentioned, I'm out here doing this listening tour. I'm talking to a lot of folks about where the opportunities might lie. And the goal is to try to figure out uh, what, what interesting news stories might resonate with people. Where are they perhaps experiencing pain or seeing sort of a change in their community, in their neighborhood, in their industry that they can't quite put into context? Mm -hmm. Um, And trying to bring folks both appropriate historical context and some ambitious forward-looking vision um, and telling stories around that historical context and ambitious vision with that uncertainty um, complicating established narratives that don't really seem to go very far. You know, it's it's one thing to talk about an opioid epidemic and to tell horrible stories about people who are dying from overdoses. I think it's another thing entirely to to think about that story from the perspective of radical new treatments that are reshaping the way that people um, are able to help members of their community. Um, that are reshaping the way that we imagine what it means for someone to be interested in mm-hmm. um, uh, drugs, for example, as a solution to to their pain or anxiety that they're feeling, in, in reimagining what we think, or at least challenging what we initially what we think today, the conclusions we've reached about what it means to be sort of addicted to a substance. I think there are a lot of opportunities there to just take established narratives that uh, seem pretty black and white that can often be very bleak. 
and enriching them by asking provocative questions at the margins that, that force us to imagine uh, possibilities that we just couldn't have before. So true, because especially with that example, so to follow the thread, the hedge fund that for years had managed the money and uh, family office of the family that actually created and bankrolled uh, a lot of the opioid drugs, the hedge fund actually returned their money and said, we're no longer going to manage your money. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's really exciting. And, uh, you know, when we have financial institutions that are taking a stand, um, you know, those are the messages that I feel like more people need to hear. Um, so what outside of video are you doing a lot of written content you're doing? I know you have a podcast. What are you what other mediums are you excited about? Well, certainly interested in podcasts. I think there's just huge opportunities in audio, you know, when what excites me most about this space is the degree to which people are willing to invest their time in a quality way, um, both quantitatively and qualitatively in stories and storytelling, longer form conversations about important issues, conversations that are perhaps somewhat open-ended that don't presume at the end of this exchange there's going to be a definitive winner and, and loser. And now we know precisely what we should do about said complicated problem. Um, I'd love to do more in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the idea of of helping to highlight a particular aspect of an important discussion in hopes that I can get you to not only be more curious about the discussion, but to be curious about it in different ways. It's that sort of new disruptive thinking um, that can be innovative. So we're certainly thinking about audio. Um, Freethink is certainly doing a lot more in terms of written content. We've been beefing up our editorial staff and um, doing some editorial packages so that the people who are writing stuff for us and the people who are doing producing videos are able to work on things in tandem um, and perhaps sort of over longer period of time, longer periods of time. Um, so yeah, there's a, a enormous amount of opportunity out there and in a bunch of different ways for us to to try to leverage um, our creative assets to really deliver high quality content to people that gives them multiple aspects and multiple dimensions of important stories. Very cool. And outside of work, what are you doing to relax? I know you've had a uh, uh, daughter in uh-huh. your life recently. Yeah, I don't know what this relaxed thing is. <laughs> what is that? Um, are you uh, are you finding time to kick back at all? Are you able to catch up on uh, reading or yeah. able to get to the gym? What are, what are you doing? I'm definitely reading. Uh, I'm reading all the time, uh, but it's it's so much harder. Um, the the constraints on my time now that I have a daughter and you've got this startup that you're managing as well. Um, you 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 learn very quickly um, just how little time there is in a day. Um, uh, I'm meditating. Meditation has been actually enormously valuable to me. It's something that I've, I've always kind of tried to do, um, but I've been doing a lot more um, using like Headspace and a couple of other interesting apps out there. Again, talk about technology addition, addiction. Mm-hmm. This is a place where technology has been really valuable in both introducing me to a practice and then helping me to, to actually do this practice consistently um over time and and derive some value from it um but yeah enjoying my family like really enjoying the the this new experience of being a dad something you and i both have in common i think i'm a couple of months ahead of you um, You in the journey um it's it's one of those experiences where everyone told me all of the things beforehand like to the point where it almost got annoying oh you're gonna love it it's gonna be great she's amazing it just changed your life and it's, it's hard 
it would be hard for me to overstate just how radical a change it is in terms of the way I view like every ordinary interaction with people. Um, the it's the newness of like watching her learn to walk. Like now she's discovering speech and like grappling with words. And I can see concepts that sort of seem to animate her. She's taking particular interests in things and I'm enormously excited about rediscovering old favorite things and sharing stories with her and um, and content with her that I've seen and loved. You get to watch the Star Wars franchise over again from the beginning with someone who is not experienced with it at all. And if she's interested, then we get to discover it anew together. Um, and if she's not, then I get to try something else. Um, but it's a, uh, it's a great adventure. And I mean, I think, you know, that, that to me is, I suppose the, the respite right now, you know, I'm in a, in a point in my life where I'm trying very hard to maximize the opportunities that I have professionally and to focus on those things. Uh, but I'm also making certain to really be available to be a part of her growing up uh, and to really soak it all in, um, to really just be present when I'm with her and with my wife. And that's, that's my whole life away from the office. And as far as books, what are you reading, uh, fiction-wise or nonfiction-wise? Um, Anything stand out? Yeah, I've been reading a lot of sci-fi stuff, um, as as I usually do. Um, from a from a nonfiction standpoint, I've got a range of things that are really important to me. I've been reading Possible Minds, uh, which is a, a book of twenty-five different perspectives on artificial intelligence. So that's kind of work-related. Um, I recently reread Biology of Desire, which is a book about addiction. I mentioned that a little earlier. And Searching for Stars on, on an Island in Maine, which is um, Alan Lightman's book, is something that I've been reading and rereading for like the past several months. And it's just this beautiful, almost, it, it's almost like scripture, just this lyrical prose um, about the extraordinary world that we live in. He does, you know, everything from talk about the very small, the atoms and the quarks um, to the very large, the the universe as a whole and the galaxy and the cosmos. And um, that's, that's been really richly rewarding for me. Back to the sci-fi. So are you revisiting old classics? Are you discovering new ones? What are you reading? Both things. I'm trying to remember that there was something from... Uh, from Audible Studios about the the Bobaverse that I read pretty recently, which is another sort of AI related book where someone uploads their consciousness into a machine and then their consciousness is being duplicated and they have these extraordinary adventures. So that's um, one book that I recently read, but I also reread um, Ender's Game not too long ago. Reread um, uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, just some cu- a couple of old classics, which there's something about returning to a book like that, something that was really important to you earlier in life and sort of rediscovering new things in old characters. Um, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty wonderful. I read a cool background. It's called, uh, I think astonishing science fiction, but it was about the rise of the, uh, core editor that kind of brought together Heinlein, uh, Asimov, Hubbard, and a whole bunch of other talents. But he was basically the guy that was responsible for, um, kind of helping develop all of them as writers and helping them find their voices. And there was a time when all of these different sci-fi authors were basically just fed ideas by him. He would he would tell them what to write. And I think that's very interesting that uh, a lot of their voices were catalyzed by one individual that 
history is largely forgot. That's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's very, uh, very interesting, especially when it relates to publishing. It kind of opened my eyes to uh, new models for for media and things like that. Um, when it comes to trilogies or series or anything like that, are there any sci-fi series that you recommend for people that maybe they're not sold on sci-fi yet, but they're thinking about getting into it uh, and they want a good entry point? You mentioned you mentioned two there. Ender's Game is awesome. Uh, anything else come to mind? I mean, I'd, I'd probably start there. I mean, there's there's other stuff too. I mean, just like Tolkien, like is, yeah. is great. I, I mean, I, the the thing about fantasy again is it's it's about like possible possible worlds. It's it's about the the things that that could happen. About just kind of the extraordinary journey. Um, and there's something wonderful about a series that you can stay with where you can follow a character and you can follow the generations that came after them as well. Um, I, I'd love to recommend uh, Game of Thrones, although Song of Ice and Fire, I suppose, is the appropriate title for the uh, for the series. But it's a, a little bittersweet because the books have, have stopped coming and the television series, which is run ahead of the books, is getting ready to come to an end. Um, so I suppose I'm, I'm looking forward to watching the conclusion of that and hoping that maybe with the conclusion of it, I'll still get the books, which I would still totally read <laughs> um, if they started to materialize again. Awesome. Camille, thank you so much for being generous with your time here. Is there anything that you might leave everyone with a final thought or call to action or what have you been thinking lately that you want to leave the audience with? Well, no, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of the themes that we've been talking about are are things that are at the forefront of my mind. Um, there are, there are most certainly a lot of interesting and daunting challenges on the horizon. Um, but there are almost certainly always people who are creative and who are innovative, who are thinking about how to tackle those challenges. Um, and I think that in a moment like now, you know, when folks are concerned about automation, they're concerned about what the future, the the changes that might disrupt their lives in possible ways. Um, there's something it's vitally important to remember how essential growth is, how essential it is for us to achieve new and better ways of doing things because stasis isn't really an option. You know, entropy kind of requires that things will degrade and wear down. We can't stand still. Um, so we should always be looking for ways to, to push forward, to advance, to grow um, to grow the economy, to expand our abilities and capacities from a technological standpoint, um, and to really ask why not, um, as opposed to whether or not to imagine whether or not we should do something. Um, the, the why not is probably the better question. That was awesome. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, Chad. Mission.org is a media company with a daily newsletter, network of podcasts, and brand studio designed to accelerate learning. Head to Mission.org to get award-winning podcasts like The Mission Daily, The Story, IT Visionaries, Education Trends, Marketing Trends, Future of Cities, and more. Mission Studios has worked with companies like Salesforce, Twilio, and Katera, to create custom media channels that drive results. Make sure to subscribe to the mission's daily newsletter at mission.org.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.